This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Devil Pulls the Strings by J.W. Zarek. Narrated by Kurt Bonham. Chapter 24 Wakambi's Office Sapphire and I entered the Steinhardt building lobby. Potted trees on each side of the reception desk are new, but the two security guards aren't. Blaine and Bo are still here, still dressed in dark blue, NYU security stitched in yellow on their shirts and hats. These two guys are unforgettable. And it's not because of their runway model good looks. Blaine's snow-white clown hair explodes from under his hat. Bo's hair and beard are dyed in unnatural red, which still reminds me of a taco gone rancid. May I help? Blaine says. Do you have an appointment? Bo says. They stop to glance at each other, half indignant and half humored. How do you guys still work here? Sapphire's expression is full of, how are you possibly security? Miss Anju, you're, you're back. back. Blaine and Bo chime in simultaneously. I'm sorry, Miss Anju. You can't go up to the 10th floor right now. Bo's voice hangs heavily. The police have it blocked off, Blaine says. Bo holds his hand against the side of his mouth and whispers, There was a terrible accident. Blaine covers his mouth, eyes wide. James was thrown out a window. Bo fiddles with his flashlight. And Houston was beaten to a pulp. Blaine's face carries rewind, repeat regrets. It ain't right what happened to them. It ain't right. And Ms. Marcy, Ms. Marcy was found in pieces, Bo stammers. It's our fault they're dead. If we hadn't let those men in to visit the professor. James, Houston, and Ms. Marcy would be all right, Bo finishes. How did you keep your jobs? Sapphire pushes. Professor Wickamby. Blaine's eyes mist with tears. He spoke up for us, Blaine says. No one ever speaks up for us. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Bo's voice chokes on the last words. Guys, we were told to see Professor Wickamby in the archives, I say before they both end up sobbing messes. You don't want to do that. No sorry, Bob. Blaine's tone holds a host of unspoken warnings. Why not? I ask. Professor Wickamby's in a right fit state. Bo crosses his arms. I salute two fingers. Thank you for the warning, gentlemen. We'll be careful. Don't you mention it, sir. A half-smile quirks across Blaine's face, then fades. But if you wouldn't mind, can you mention to the professor how helpful we were? Sure, guys. You got it. I smile back. Sapphire and I enter the elevator, and I press B4. 
The elevator moves at grass-growing, paint-drying slowness. B1 flashes above the doors. B2 flashes. The elevator crawls to the next floor. B3 flashes, and the doors open. The hallway fluorescent light flickers. Bzzz. Rustling. Scurrying. <coughs> Rats, I whisper. I hate the archives, Sapphire says. The doors close, and the elevator creeps ever downward. B4 flashes. Doors open. The word archives painted white on the hallway wall. Sapphire holds my hand. I step out of the safe elevator and inhale. Ugh, do you smell that? The odor of faint, sickly sweet gas drifts up my nostrils. I cover my mouth and nose. Sapphire scrunches her nose. Stone told me an industrial-sized gas-filed system was installed in the 1980s, and it always smells of gas down here. Let's just find Wakambi's office. An old plaque draws my attention. Steinhardt's Department of Music and Performing Arts, established in 1925. A monochrome photo hangs to its left. A twinge fires in my gut just looking at the image. The label reads, Inaugural Photo of the Department of Music and Performing Arts Facility. One of the men in the group reminds me of Wakambi. At the end of the hall is a door with a placard with Professor Wickamby's name. I knock. On the other side of the door, there's a crash and then scuffling. How dare you, says a voice which sounds a lot like Wickamby. The professor's in trouble. I twist the knob, push hard. The door flies open. Behind a large desk stands Professor Wickamby. He swings his cane at two men in dark suits and fedoras and each holds a crowbar. Professor Wicambi, Sapphire shouts. The men turn, their faces etched in surprise. My gaze darts from swords in a wall display to swords in a waist-high urn a foot away. Go get help! I push Sapphire back into the hallway. I grab the closest sword in the wall display and pull. The entire display crashes to the floor, along with all the swords including the one I pulled. The largest man narrows his I'm-going-to-kill-you glare. The other man cracks his knuckles and neck. Professor Wickamby raises his cane, his face full of trapped frustration. I lunge, snatch a sword from the urn, and charge. The big man swings his crowbar at my head. Clang! My sword crashes into his crowbar. My blade slides down. Slices his wrist and forearm. Oh! His shout splits the air. He drops the crowbar. I shift and direct my sword's tip into the top of the man's right shoe. The tip of the blade pierces deep. His face bursts into surprise, gives way to shock, then pain. Wah! I kick my heel into the back of his calf yank and twist the end of his collar with my free hand. He lurches back. My sword releases. His feet fly up. Thud. His back hits the floor. He grimaces. The other man lumbers at me. I drop to my knees and twist, slide, slip under him. 
His large-sized heavy feet and cumbersome slower response save me, and he falls to his knees. I pop up, swing my sword, and catch the back of the man's belt. Down go his pants. I throw a punch at the back of his neck. Don't! His voice rings in pain. I deliver a sharp kick to the small of his back. He doubles over, then he splats face first on the floor. Wakambi's shoulders relax, and he lowers his cane. By the luck of the Lusignan, your arrival is most fortuitous. His tone holds astonishment. The phone on the desk rings. Wakambi answers. Hello. Yes, Miss Anjou. The police are in the building? You got the music, music man? The man is on his knees. Not here. I slip him a wink. We can keep fighting and say hi to the police. Cynthia's not gonna like this, he says. Cynthia's not going to like it if you get arrested either, I say. The burning question fresh in my head simmers. How'd these guys get past Blaine and Bo again? The man stands and heads for the door. Let's go, he says to the other guy still on the floor. He staggers to his feet, and they both limp out the door. I face Wicambi. Are you all right? He steadies himself against his desk. Tell me, Mr. Daniels, where did you learn to handle a blade so well? Renfair. I'm unable to contain a grin. You know, giant turkey legs, busty wenches, fairies, knights, good old-fashioned sword fights and jousts. I pull down the edge of my collar, show him a long, deep-heeled gash, and lift my shirt to show off older battle scars running down my side. But it's not all fun and games. Those look serious. Wakambi's tone is somber. You should see the other guys. Wicambi forces a half-smile. Yes, that's all well and good, but you mentioned something about finding Paganini's sheet music. Yes, 24 Caprices in Trinity Church. Sapphire appears at the door. My fake phone call worked? Now that the fight's over, I scan Wicambi's office. There are four paintings of musicians on the wall behind him, and a table against the wall beneath the paintings. The table dotted with six figurines and two statues. In front of him, a desk covered with books, sheets of music, and folders. Four chairs and two music stands, all toppled over on the floor. Two cabinets and two bookshelves line the walls on either side of the desk. Professor, your security guards Blaine and Bo wanted me to mention how helpful they've been, but... The words tumble out of my mouth. How the heck did Cynthia's men get past them a second time, and why the heck did you vouch for those guys? My tone rises and strangles the last four words. Wakambi's jaw tightens. He sucks air between his teeth. He exhales exasperated air. <sighs> Cynthia's men are not our most immediate concern, nor is those security guards continued employment. Wakambi points his cane at me. His face softens. Truth be told, I am indebted to those dear men in uniform, as is your friend Flynn Michaels. Those guys saved Flynn? How? 
That discussion is for another time. He taps his cane on the floor. Where's the music from Trinity Church? His face and voice grow impatient. I hand 24 caprices to Professor Wickamby. His grim expression flashes into happy disbelief. He holds up 24 caprices to a small vial filled with a clear liquid, which then glows a blue-green. Is the liquid supposed to glow like that? I ask. Yes. As you bring Paganini's sheet music in proximity to this ink, they feel one another's presence. This causes the ink to glow. This is one way you know the music's genuine. Wakambi twists a figurine on the nearby table. Soft music plays, and the four paintings of musicians on the wall slide to the right. Behind the paintings, four glass display cases. That music is Rhapsody sur un thème du Paganini. Sapphire's voice is filled with excitement. A faint light in the first case reveals sheet music on a stand. The glass pane on the second case magically opens. McCamby places 24 caprices on an empty easel. The glass panel closes all by itself, and the four paintings slide back into place. That's quite the setup you have, I say. Are there one or two more sheets of music to collect? Sapphire asks. One. The music Professor Stone had, Wickamby says. But there were two more empty cases behind the wall, I say. You are perceptive. Three cases will house the music. The fourth case is for the blank parchment and blue rose ink once it's in our possession. All the necessary components for the ritual. What's the blue rose ink used for? Sapphire asks. It's the catalyst that triggers the music and draws the devil's attention. But the blue rose doesn't grow in nature or on this earthly plane of existence. But it does reappear once every 100 years. But you have the ink in your hand, I say. Wicambi holds the vial up and shakes his head. This is just a poor substitute solution able to glow, a result of ink scraped for many years off many sheets of music. It holds neither the power nor the strength we require for the ritual. Where do we find the blue rose? I press. The opportunity to find the blue rose becomes available at midnight tonight in the dungeons of Belvedere Castle. A glimmer in his eyes tells me he's been waiting to tell of this dramatic moment a long time. Belvedere Castle has no dungeons? It's ornamental in design, Sapphire says. Miss Anjou, did Professor Stone ever tell you why the dragons and nymphs arranged to have their charity ball in New York City? Bacambi asks. He told me the dragons and nymphs select a different city every year for their annual event, and New York City was this year's location. This is true, but when did they select this city? He asks. Sapphire's forehead wrinkles as if thinking of conversations past. I don't believe he told me when the selection was made. One hundred years ago. And can you guess why? He asks. Because the dragons and nymphs knew Baba Yaga would wake here, I say, surprised how or why this thought came to me. Correct, Wickamby says. And the doorway underneath Belvedere Castle opens at midnight that leads to Baba Yaga. 
A doorway? I ask. Yes, tonight at midnight. And in another hundred years, a doorway shall open at Glastonbury Tor in England. An odd shudder ripples through me at the mention of Glastonbury Tor. But why? I've never been there. Stone told me the dragons and nymphs' dark numbers grow unchecked, he continues, while the side of light's numbers dwindle. So to get to this blue rose, how do I access this dungeon? I ask. Wakambi's hand slides under his desk. Click. A cabinet door opens. To access the dungeon, you have to feed the cockatrice. What's a cockatrice? I ask. Every door has a guardian. The cockatrice at Belvedere Castle in New York, the questing beast at Glastonbury Tor. The questing beast? I say. We're not dealing with the questing beast. Pretend I didn't mention it. Today, it's a cockatrice we're going to feed. He retrieves a pouch from the cabinet and tosses it to me. Instincts and reflexes fire, and I catch the pouch. I loosen the pouch's drawstring and pull out three multicolored stones. What's a cockatrice? Sapphire asks. A six-inch half-bared, half-snake creature. The epitome of everything evil, Bacambi says. My stomach gurgles. A wave of nausea hits. Want to tell me about this evil cockatrice? It can kill or bring grievous harm to a man in five different ways, he says. Like everyone knows this. Its mere glance can turn you to stone. That's one way. He holds up one finger. Touching it, or its breath upon you, kills you where you stand. Two fingers. It can scorch the ground and eradicate all surrounding fauna. Three fingers. If you try to kill it with a weapon, its venom simply travels up the weapon, killing whoever holds it. Four fingers. And it can kill with the sound of its voice. Five fingers. I stare at the stones in my palm. One stone is egg-shaped, another heart-shaped, and the third is a speckled reddish-brown. And you think my walking up and feeding these stones to the cockatrice is going to work? I have serious doubts. Bukambi rubs the bridge of his nose. You hold in your hand a cockatrice egg from the bottom of Dosmary Pool near Boventor in Cornwall, a blood-soaked ram porphyry from the Oslo Rift in Norway, and a freeze-dried lamart from the Amazon. So, yes, it should work, I hope. I put the stones back in the pouch. Not quite sure my doubts have been squashed. And how do I find this cockatrice at Belvedere Castle? You'll know after you get there, he says. Not specific or helpful. And after I find this creature and give it these stones, then what? I ask. The entrance to the dungeon opens, and you're granted access to where Baba Yaga slumbers. You retrieve the blue rose that grows there. And whatever you do, only enter the dungeon to retrieve the blue rose. Do not enter any other portals. We can be sweating. And I'm wondering if he believes I'm up for the task. And after I somehow manage to do all this, what shall I do with your flower? I pocket the pouch. Bring the blue rose to me, he says. I can't help my curiosity, so I ask. 
Why me? Wakambi adjusts his jacket. I'm too old to do this. Miss Anju has to live to play her solo performance, so that leaves you. Sapphire leans forward, grips the edge of Wakambi's desk with both hands. What do you mean I need to live? Is Boone's life in jeopardy chasing this blue rose? And even with the rose, we still need the third piece of sheet music. The music Professor Stone was to collect and died for. Calm down, McCamby says. All the gears are grinding. All will work out. Go back to Stone's brownstone and use this. He holds up a ball of string. Not quite as weird as the pouch of rocks, but close. What's that? I ask. The actual gut strings from Paganini's Canone Violin Guarneri del Gesù used to summon the devil 100 years ago. Wakambi's tone takes on an otherworldly vibe. These animal gut strings were soaked in the same bath of blue rose ink as Paganini's sheet music. The closer you are to the music, the brighter these strings get. Wakambi waves the string ball at the paintings on the wall, hiding the display cases. The strings glow in a bluish-green hue. Stone eat the music, but you have the magic. Wakambi tosses me the string. Use this to find the last piece of music. It's somewhere in Stone's home. Okay, we'll search Stone's brownstone again before we go to Belvedere Castle. I cram the ball into my pocket. And remember, keep Miss Anjou safe. His stare lingers. I will confide in you both. Professor Stone and I talked the morning he died. We decided the best course of action was to destroy the music. But to do so requires bringing all the sheet music, blue ink, and special parchment together. McCamby breathes in deep. And the musician who performs the ritual has to sacrifice a portion of their talent, their essence, their soul. He wipes sweat from his face. I'll do it. Sapphire's confident tone shows her commitment to sacrifice to save New York City. I must do the same. I finger the pouch and gut ball in my pocket. Let's go find Lestrege and this blue rose. Coming up next in The Devil Pulls the Strings by J.W. Zarek. Chapter 25 Lestrege